Usually, I ask my wife to come and pray, uh, pray at the beginning of every series, uh, which I fully forgot about and then obviously didn't get to. Um, I just want to introduce the series to you. Um, I'm not actually preaching today, which is great. Um, I want to introduce the series to you, and then I'm going to pray for the series, and then I'm going to invite Scott to come and, and share God's Word. One of the things that churches, I believe, don't do that well is sometimes we, we, we're not good at answering hard questions. Um, the world has a lot of questions about God and about Christianity, and, and you know, so do we. But a lot of the time in mainstream church, uh, especially sort of in a Sunday context, we don't really answer them because, uh, to be honest, number one, it's hard. It's hard. Um, some of these, some of these, I guess, more controversial topics, they're hard because uh, it's not necessarily mainstream topics or celebrated topics. They're just hard topics. And so a lot of churches, a lot of pastors, including myself, we, we kind of just sort of steer away from it. Like, let's just sort of preach the main stuff. But a lot of the times, people are not satisfied. They come to church and they're not satisfied because the question that they have is not being answered. Now, what this series is called Tough Questions. And we're going to take the next four weeks to address four topics. Now, there are obviously more than four tough topics um, I started writing them down, and I think I got to like 30. Uh, we're just going to address four of them, okay? And, and hopefully, if it goes well, um, once sort of every two years, we're going to do this. Take some time to address some of the things that you're, you actually might have questions about. Um, it's also a great time to invite your non-Christian friends that might have these same questions because they can get addressed in a way. Now, a few provisos. Um, we've invited the Year 5 and 6 ministry up because they're not kids. Like, let's just start with that. That's a big thing, right? They're not kids, right? My son, he's bigger than half of you now. All right? He's taller than half of you now. Jetty's going to get there in a few years, you know. Um, I, don't, I, I would truly believe that if they... If, 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 you know, they're not just coming to church to sit in a, a kids' program, but they genuinely need to wrestle with some of these questions too. And so, but, but here's the proviso. We are, the preaching is now to a very wide audience, okay? And so, um, we're now taking into account that we have year five and six students in here as well. And so Scott was, was uh, uh, told that, and then I've been, I told myself that as well. And so um, we need to make sure that it is, um, the, the topics are addressed carefully uh, and appropriately. Okay, we're going to do our best to address these topics. Um, I just ask from your perspective, that number one, don't think that we're going to answer everything. There's no way you're going to walk out and go, yeah, ticked every single one of my boxes, I'm good, Okay. Uh, I think this is a way to introduce these topics. In our small groups, you're going to be talking about these topics, and, and that's going to be fun. Um, number two, please allow for some grace. Okay? Don't sit there and go, okay, apologetics, hard topics, let's get the gun out. As soon as he says something wrong, bang, Twitter, bang, social media, bang, going to leave the church, bang, God is bad. You know, like, give us some grace. You know? Like, Scott's a pro, I'm not. Okay, so this week will be okay, but from next week, okay, it's, you know, it all goes downhill from there, okay? Um, 
I think we need to graciously approach these topics. There's, a, there's, a, there's an attitude of humility that we need to have when we approach hard topics because at the end of the day, you don't know the answer, okay? And unless you're God, you really don't have a, a, a position to judge other people, okay? And so the four topics that we're addressing, tonight we're addressing the relationship between Christianity and science. How does that all work? You know, where did, where did the world start? I don't even know what Scott's preaching on, actually, so I'm just going to throw questions out there. If he addresses them, he addresses them. If he doesn't, that's your life groups, okay? Uh, next week, I'm preaching on, uh, do all religions lead to God? Are they all the same? All right? Week number three, does God hate homosexuals? Oh, heard the awkwardness in that one. And then week number four, if God is good, why is there so much suffering in this world? Okay? And so they're the four topics that we're going to be uh, touching upon. Um, as said, we will do our best as the church to present them to you and then in our small groups to talk about them. Okay? Feel free to email Pastor May after any of these talks. Okay? Feel free to pass. Um, I'll give you her email address and her phone number. And she's more than happy to answer any other question that you have. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then Scott will be back next week as well. Uh, I'm going to pray. Let's pray. Father God, we do understand, Lord, that there is truth. There is an absolute truth, and that is you. And Lord, from that truth, from your word, comes um, ways we need to live our lives, attitudes that we need to have, Lord, and, and, and beliefs that can be formed. Lord, we just pray for grace over this series. We understand that it is a little bit tougher than a, a normal series, but we just pray for eyes to see and ears to hear. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would um, just prepare the soil well, that your word would be received um, today and in this month well. well. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I just want to introduce Scott. Uh, Scott actually... Some of you might be like, I've seen this guy before. Well, yes. Scott actually came and, and preached at our friendship banquet um, at our six-year anniversary, and it's great to have him back tonight to uh, share God's Word. So can we give him a big hand? Thanks, Scott. You're very kind, and uh, thank you, brother. I think I have the easy one listening to those four topics, so well, good luck with that, mate. Um, but let me commend that series to you. A very important bunch of questions to come to terms with, uh, whether you're a Christian or not, wherever you are on the, the belief spectrum. Uh, because if you're not asking those questions yet, you will later. So you need to work out what the answers are. Um, so well done going in headlong into a series like this. Okay, are Christians anti-science? Um, I hope not is the short answer. <laughs> But I'll explain more. Uh, a smaller question that relates to that, is science and God in conflict? Uh, why are we asking the question? Let's go to the next slide. Uh, the apparent problem is, on the one hand, science is based on evidence, objective, hardcore evidence, but Christianity is based on faith. And as we're told, faith is belief without evidence. That's what we're told by people like Richard Dawkins, a famous atheist and scientist. Faith is belief without evidence. 
Uh, and we have to be honest, the Bible does contain some stuff that science can't verify, right? Miraculous sort of stuff. Here's one famous scientist who put it pretty bluntly in the next slide. Uh, science and religion cannot be reconciled. Religion has failed and its failures should stand exposed. Uh, he's now retired, but uh, he was the professor of chemistry at Oxford University. So, are they irreconcilable enemies? Well, let's think about it carefully. Firstly, let's start with science. What can science do? Let's go to the next slide. Uh, did you know that there's no agreed standard definition of science? I've tried hard to find one over the years. The experts disagree. Uh, there is an agreed kind of nature and method, though. Science is a particular method for gaining knowledge of the physical world. It observes and describes the physical properties of the universe via what we call the empirical method. The empirical method is your five senses. Ears, you can hear things. Sight, you can see things. Nose, you can smell things. Taste, you can taste things. Is that all? Oh, touch. Don't forget touch. And some people have a sixth sense. All right, they can see dead people, but that's just a, a, an old movie joke. Sorry. Uh, there's five senses. And so what science does is it employs the senses to observe physical reality, and it, it draws conclusions about what it observes. Okay? Now, it's important to realize that science is strictly for the observation of physical properties and the description of those properties. That's what it's really good at. That's what science can do really well. But what can't science do? Next slide. Science is actually limited in a number of ways. Firstly, uh, we have fallible scientists. I don't know if anyone here is a scientist, uh, but you know that you are fallible. You make mistakes, sometimes deliberately, sometimes not deliberately. Uh, secondly, we could talk about how science is, in, in essence, an updatable phenomenon, right? That is, science is not fixed. It's open to review and update. That's good science. You hold on to a theory until more evidence and data comes in that overthrows that theory, and then you adopt a new theory, right? There's a few examples from history that are famous. So in the 17th century, the Greek view of the solar system, not the biblical view, the Greek view of the solar system, said that the Earth was at the centre of the solar system. And then Galileo came along and said, no, 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 look at this evidence. Actually, the sun is at the solar of the system. The sun is the centre of the solar system. And so science updated. Or Newton had a, a, um, a, very, a, a view of physics that everyone accepted until Einstein came along and did his crazy smart thing and we changed to this idea called relativity. I don't ex pretend to understand it, but that's what happened. Science updated. Science used to say that stomach ulcers were caused by... Does anyone know? Stomach ulcers were caused by, what do you reckon? Stress. That was the current, well, at the time, theory on the cause of stomach ulcers. So the advice was de-stress and your stomach ulcers should subside. But science has shown, no, it was not stress. It was actually a particular form of bacteria. Science updated. Science done properly is open to review, open to update, open to change. So... You've got fallible scientists employing an open-to-review method for gaining knowledge about the physical world. But 
the main limit on science that I want to discuss is in what it can know. This is important to understand. Science is not the only way of knowing true things about the universe. Okay? Uh, Richard Dawkins, who is a famous atheist and scientist, he's written a couple of books and I've read them. He recently wrote a book for children uh, called The Magic of Reality. And in it, he says, quote, only that detected by the five senses is real. Now, think carefully. Only that detected by the five senses is real. Nothing else is real. Here's the question for Richard and for you. Which of your five senses tells you that that sentence is true? <laughs> Can you smell the truth of that sentence? Can you see it physically with your optic nerves and the brain interpreting it, the visual data? Can you hear it? Put your ear on the plate, I mean the page. Touch it. None of your five senses confirms the truth of that statement. And so it actually self-defeats. In other words, you can't know the truth of that statement using science. You have to assume it. it's a concept in your mind. Okay? This is called scientism. We're getting a little bit technical, but we need to go there. Scientism is the hardcore extremist view that only things that can be shown by science to be true are true and nothing else is. Only the five senses. Well, you can't even prove that statement using your five senses, so, you know... You're not starting off on the right foot. The next slide. Oh, we're already there, sorry. The science is not the only way to know things. This is just true. We can know logically and mathematically. So did you know that numbers are not physical realities? They're conceptual realities? Just talk to a top physicist or mathematician. That's right. right. Numbers are not physical things. You can represent numbers with physical things. One finger, you can see that. But the concept of one, it's, it's not a physical thing. It's a rational concept. And logic and maths works that way. You can know things logically and mathematically. Secondly, you can know things historically. Okay, what did you have for lunch yesterday? You, you might still be able to prove that scientifically because there's still some food in your system. What did you have for Christmas lunch last year? There's no way you could prove that scientifically. But historically you could. Uh, one of the problems here is that science is based on repetition and observation, but history, you can't repeat history and you can't observe it, therefore. But you can still know things to be true from history. You don't need science to know historical truths. Thirdly, you can know ethically, and this is not scientific knowledge. Richard Dawkins himself admits, he says this, quote, science has no methods for deciding what is ethical. We're talking about morality, what's right and wrong. And that's because what's, got, what's science good at? Observing nature. And nature is neutral. It's not good or bad. There's no moral categories in nature. It's neutral. You can't jump from neutral nature to ethical norms. You can't go from matter to morality, from nature to norms, okay? from facts to value. It's an illogical jump. You can't know ethics using science. What about beauty or aesthetics? 
again. Uh, I don't know, think of a, have we got any paintings in here? There's a nice painting or a screen. Um, science can tell us about the chemical composition of the painting, but it can't tell us that it's a beautiful piece of art. That's a subjective judgment that you make, not a scientific judgment. Let's see what Carl says. Remember Dr. Carl, next slide. Anyone want to have a guess at how to pronounce his surname? <laughs> I'm not going there. But this guy's famous in Australia. He's, the, he's on the radio all the time. He's been on TV. He knows a lot about a lot of scientific things. Every time I see the Sydney Harbour Bridge, I get a non-scientific and irrational leap of joy. Yay! He thinks it's beautiful. Science can't explain that. Personal. Oh, if we go back the screen, sorry. The last one is personal and relational. This is not a scientific way of knowing. Uh, how do I know that my mum loves me? I just know it intuitively. You can say, well, we could scientifically test it. We could observe her loving actions. Yeah, well, maybe she's a good actor. <laughs> I don't need science to prove it. You could probably measure some things with science, but I don't actually need science to prove it. I just know intuitively emotionally, relationally, I know something that I don't need science to verify. We can know stuff, good stuff, true stuff, without science. Okay? In fact, when you think about it carefully, science doesn't tell us anything, really, of ultimate importance. Now, I know that's a big claim, but think about it. Think about what's, mo what's most important to you. What's most significant to you? Issues of personal value, issues of meaning and purpose, issues of justice and morality and freedom and, and value and human love. All, all these things are outside the scope of science. Science doesn't comment on those things. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not disrespecting science. I, I did a degree in science. I've thought about this for a long time. Science is great when limited to its design, when it observes and describes the physical properties of the universe and comes up with greater inventions like this, all right? Now, let me give an illustration that often drives this home for us. Let's imagine that you turn up to your friend Freddie, uh, Freddie's birthday party, and there you are enjoying the party at Freddie's house and Freddie's mum brings out a big fat chocolate cake with candles on it. And you're a very inquisitive, scientifically-minded person. Mmm, very interesting. Look at this interesting thing. I'd like to understand the cake. Please explain the cake. Now, because science is apparently the only way of knowing anything about anything, we, we get a bunch of scientists to come and explain the cake. So we get a nutritional scientist who comes and tells you about the calorie count. And then we roll in a biochemist who comes and tells you about the structure of the protein and the fats. And you're fascinated by this. You're writing it all down. You're learning so much about the cake. And then a physicist comes in and tells, talks about the fundamental particles in the cake. And then a mathematician comes in and devises some equations and to describe the behaviour of those particles. And all the scientists leave, and now you're so excited because you know everything there is to know about the cake, don't you? The cake has been fully explained by science. Or has it? In fact, the most important fact about the cake has not been explained. You might understand the cake scientifically, but you don't understand the meaning and the significance of the cake. Why? 
is there a chocolate cake with candles at Freddie's birthday party? And that's because, as his mum reveals, we're celebrating Freddie's life. He's finally 21. Let's sing happy birthday. And you're a little bit confused because you're still thinking, what? Only science can explain reality. This is a bit... And anyway. You see, purpose and significance. Different question. Science can't answer that. So the view that, which we call scientism, that only science explains all things is not correct. And it's out there. You might believe it. It might be in here. And that's okay. We love having you visit us. But just remember that it's actually not the best way to think about it. So, there's other ways to know true things. But what about God? I seem to be avoiding the faith question. What about God? Can science tell us anything about God? Well, let's think about it. What have I just said? Science is really good at describing physical things. What if God is not a physical thing? Suddenly we have a problem. And the Bible tells us that God is an invisible and spiritual being. And if that's the case, then why would I expect science to tell me much about him? And if that's the case, then I, I should turn to the other avenues of knowing to, to, to find out stuff about God, perhaps. If I can't see God through the telescope, and I've tried, I bought a telescope once when I was a kid, I could see the rings around, I could see the rings around Saturn. It was amazing. I didn't see the face of Jesus in Saturn or anything like that. I don't think science is the best tool for seeing God because God's not a physical thing in the universe. So does that mean that science is irrelevant to finding God, to describing God? To, is, is God and... It's not that they're enemies, but is it just irrelevant? Is science and God, are they irrelevant? And the answer is no, not at all. In fact... Christians believe that God is foundational for science. For while we don't need science to explain God, there's other ways of knowing God, and we'll see that soon. While we don't need science to explain God, we actually do need God to explain science. Next slide. For God, for Christians, God is not an alternative to science, but the reason for it, the foundation for it. And here are some foundational assumptions in the Bible, in the Christian worldview, that provide the necessary and fertile foundation for Western science. Let me explain what I mean here. Firstly, there's one God. Now, why does that matter? Well, because uh, if there's many gods, as in many other worldviews, there's no cosmic stability. And creation will reflect that disorderliness but having one God provides the basis for stability and order in his creation. Secondly, and as a result, we have an ordered creation. You read Genesis chapter 1, it's extremely ordered. And its orderliness makes science possible. Creation is reliable. It's coherent. It's intelligible. It hangs together. It's not chaotic. It just doesn't fall apart like some plasmic chaos. You can observe patterns in nature. You can predict outcomes and test them because it's an ordered creation. Thirdly, it's a good creation. Why does that matter? Well, 
because creation is good, we can embrace it with joy and wonder and curiosity. In many ancient worldviews, and even many today, creation is either feared or revered or denied. In many animist cultures, spirits inhabit the trees and the volcanoes and the rivers, and a scientist coming in and taking a piece of bark off the tree, careful, you're going to upset the tree spirit. You should fear the tree. That doesn't encourage scientific inquiry, does it? Or some pantheistic worldviews where all is seen as divine, you, you might think creation is sacred. I shouldn't get too close to it. I'll have a distance to reflect my respect for the divine. That's not going to encourage scientific inquiry. Uh, another Hind, uh, Eastern worldview, such as Hinduism, believes that all reality is an illusion. You can't take science seriously when you deny re the reality of nature and consider it as an illusion. Okay? So, I'm not saying science, it's impossible for science to kind of come out of any of these other worldviews. It's just unlikely and improbable because the very worldviews and their assumptions tend to inhibit scientific progress, but the, the biblical worldview invites it. One God, orderly world, it's good. And the fourth one is that people are made in God's image. We're image bearers. And that means we are made to um, run the world under God, which means we share something of God's rationality and something of his intelligence. We're a bit like him in some way. We share his, we're in his image. And in order to be responsible rulers of the world and responsible stewards of the world, we have to understand the world. Again, that just invites scientific inquiry, doesn't it? And so now we have a rational observer allowed to engage with good, orderly nature. It's looking promising. Let's add time to it. Biblical worldview says that time is lineal, progressing forward. Other worldviews say time is cyclical. Again, it's not impossible for science to arise in such a worldview. It just makes it more improbable. A cyclical view of history leads to fatalism. The same thing's just going to happen and happen again. There's no inherent sense of progress. But in a lineal view of time, things are moving forward. We believe in progress. And once you add a rational observer to that and a good creation and an orderly God, it all kind of adds up, right? And it forms the fertile soil for the growth of science. And historically, therefore, it's no surprise that science as we know it today came out of the Christian worldview, the Judeo-Christian worldview. That's just a historical fact. The Western scientific method developed out of the Judeo-Christian worldview on the basis of these assumptions that we never think about. And so while we don't need science to explain God because science just detects physical things, we do need God to explain science. God is the foundation of science. Let's hear what a few experts say. John Horton, a, a physicist. Our science is God's science. The remarkable order, consistency, reliability, and fascinating complexity found in the scientific description of the universe are reflections of the order, consistency, reliability, and complexity of God's activity. And a connection between God and his creation and the observers of that creation, science. Or Paul Davies, go to the next slide. 
I met this guy at Macquarie University once and uh, I asked if I could have a chat to him. He was in the middle of eating a sandwich and he was really busy and he looked really annoyed. But I kept pushing like a little fanboy because he's famous. He's a famous scientist. <laughs> so I, can I, I'll just be short. I just want to ask you a few questions. And I asked him about science and God and he was, he was fascinating. So he's not a Christian, but he's a top physicist. He's now at some uni in America. He says this, even the most atheistic scientist accepts as an act of faith that the universe is not absurd, that there is a rational basis to physical existence manifested as law-like order in nature that is at least partly comprehensible to us, so science can proceed only if the scientist adopts an essentially theological worldview. Wow. It's no surprise that science as we know it arose in regions influenced by the Judeo-Christian worldview. And it's also no surprise that most of the original scientists, the founding fathers of science, if you want to put it that way, in the 16th and 17th century, were believers, Christians. Go to slide 11. Here's some names you might have heard of. Famous, uh, Francis Bacon, he basically invented what we call the scientific method. Uh, Kepler, who was an astronomer. Blaise Pascal, who was a mathematician. Boyle, who invented chemistry. Sorry, he didn't invent it. God did, but you, you know. Um, Newton, we've heard of him. Faraday, so all these people. They're all famous. Top, and, and, and there's actually literally hundreds <laughs> that we could look at. If, if God and science are so incompatible, how, does this, how can this even be true? They saw no conflict. They saw their scientific enterprising as an exploration of God's creation. They thought it was fantastic. Uh, I was at the um, university a number of years ago and we were having a discussion about um, the existence of God in the uni bar and I was talking to a, a lovely young lady who was finishing her PhD in evolutionary biology. And we were kind of having this vigorous back and forth. It was polite, but, you know, we were kind of engaging properly, having a proper discussion. And at one point I said, oh, look, there's lots of top scientists who are Christians. And she called me on it. She said, name one. I'm like, oh, no. But here's this. How good's this? The very night before, and, and this is just God's providence, I'd been reading a book about famous Christian scientists, right? The current Christian scientists. No, I didn't know I'd meet this guy. He goes, name one. And thankfully, I remembered a few names. I said, uh, Francis Collins. Who's he, she said. He's the head of the Human Genome Project. The international human, the guy who, who's heading up genes and how they work and mapping the genes in the human body. She's like, really? He's a Christian? Yeah, 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 Bible-believing Christian. Oh, I said, yeah, look it up. Look it up, it's there. She said, name another one, because, <laughs> you know, one's not enough. And I came up with a list of names. Um, you can do your own little search. I was reading an article by a guy called Professor Ard Lewis, A-R-D Lewis. He's Professor of Theoretical Physics at Oxford at the moment. Amazing guy. Groundbreaking research in stuff that I don't even pretend to understand. He's a full-on Bible-believing Christian. Where's the conflict? Maybe we were imagining it. It's just not real. See, Christians are very comfortable in the world of science. They always have been. 
and they scoff at the myth of science and God being at odds with one another. There's even some atheists who admit this. So there's a guy called Stephen um, Jay Gould, next slide, who's not with us anymore. He said he was, he's not a, he, was, he was an atheist. Either half of my colleagues are enormously stupid or else the science of Darwinism is fully compatible with conventional religious beliefs and equally compatible with atheism. So he, he saw science as compatible with atheism or God. It kind of just doesn't matter, right? Interesting admission. Okay, so if God and science are compatible, how do they relate? Um, what are we, what's the interaction like between God and what we call science? Well, I want to say that God is not just the foundation for science, but the ruler over science. Next slide. Getting a little bit more controversial here. Stay with me if you can. We're nearly there. So I've said that God is not an alternative to science, but the explanation for it. Okay. But he's not just the first cause of it, if you like. He sustains it. This is, just a, this is a biblical conviction, but I want to show you that it works. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 tells us that Jesus Christ is sustaining the universe with his word of power. And you go, well, there you go. That's not scientific. I didn't say it was. That's not denying that he's using the laws of physics to sustain the universe. We need to know the distinction between first causes and secondary causes, and they don't contradict each other. God is the first cause, and the secondary cause is of a natural laws that he has set up. Okay? Science observes the secondary causes, the patterns in nature. Science doesn't observe the primary cause, who is God. So... Let me give you an example from Acts chapter 14. I think I've got it on the next slide. Oh, it's there. Just leave it there. Good. Acts 14, talking about God, Paul says, Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. It says, it says there that God gives you rain. And you say, no, 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 no. The hydrological cycle gives me rain. That's what I learned in primary school. Evaporation, condensation, precipitation. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. What you're doing is describing the secondary mechanism. That does not stand against or contradict the primary cause, who is God. Okay? The agent who set up the mechanism that science observes. There's no contradiction there. The Bible writers are describing the ultimate primary cause without denying the secondary mechanism, to put it technically. There's no conflict in their mind. God uses the hydrological cycle. The first cause uses the secondary cause, but science only observes the secondary cause. And that's good. That's what science does. So the next uh, quote I've got there, summing it up, next slide. Nope, go back. Sorry, I didn't put... Uh, go back again. <laughs> oh, dear, look, I'll just have to quote it for you. Here we go. Uh, here's a philosopher of science who says, science is the practice of studying the secondary causes of things, the mechanism by which God makes them happen. So let's jump to the next screen now because we've got to work out how we can know God. If science is not the best way of observing God, and I'm not saying that there's no evidence at all that points to God in nature, it's just that 
it's not the obvious place that you can see God through a telescope. If God has not made himself known, sorry, mainly through science, how can we know him? Well, let me give you an illustration. I want you to tell me about my brother. Go. That's all the information I'm giving you. I want you to tell me about my brother. Go, say something about my brother that might be true. Sorry? He's a male. Correct. Thank you. Brilliant. He's a male. This is called logical deduction, right? Rationalism. Go for it. What else can we know about my brother? He's a human being. He looks similar to me. He does without the beard. He's Anglo. Same mother and father. There you go. Now, is that satisfying? Do you know much significant about my brother? Not really. Okay, let's move it forward to the next. That was, that's called deduction. Logical deduction. That's called rational deduction. Now let's do science, because science is not rational deduction. Science is observation, and this is called induction, or inductive observation. Imagine I bring my brother out here. I say, come out, Ben, and he walks out, and he stands right here. doesn't say anything, he just looks at you. Now I say, okay, tell me more about my brother. You, and suddenly you can add things to what you've deduced. You can go, oh, he's, he's actually taller than Scott. Wow, he's six foot four. He's a bit thinner. He's got a better tan. Um, <laughs> I don't know. He's, his fashion sense isn't quite as good. Um, you, you're now learning more about my brother. That's science. But if we really want to know my brother, what needs to happen? More than deduction, right? More than inductive observation. What we need is introduction. Yeah? We need to say, Ben, reveal who you are. And so we do, and he starts telling you his life story and his likes and his passions and about his wife and kids and what he does. And, and now we're really getting to know the substance, yeah? You can't find God using science. God is invisible and transcends time and space. We are at the mercy of his self-revelation. God needs to come onto the stage and start speaking. that he stepped from behind the curtain of reality into history and walked among us, uh, among us in the person of Jesus. And therefore, Jesus is the best evidence for God. You see what some of the New Testament authors say? That he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. In other words, he's made God visible. If you had a telescope, you could have seen God in the first century walking around Palestine. You wouldn't have needed it. Binoculars would have sufficed. Or just a up-close greeting. Or John says this, it's a strange way of speaking, but bear with us. The word became flesh. The word is a way of describing God. The word became, God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory. There's science, they saw him in the first century. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And later on he says, no one has ever seen God. The one and only son who is at the father's side, he has revealed him. Until Jesus, that is, no one really saw God. But when Jesus turned up, people saw him, people heard him, people met him. 
he came onto the stage and started speaking. Okay? Knowing who Jesus is, is where it's at. If you want to know who God is and what God is like, look to where God has revealed himself mainly. Sure, there's evidence in creation. I didn't talk much about that, but you can't see God's being through a telescope. Where has he actually turned up and made himself obvious? In Jesus. So look to where he's turned up. Look at the evidence. And that's why I reckon all of you should join Pastor May's Understanding the Gospel 101 group that goes for four weeks because that's where you're going to find the best evidence. Who is Jesus and what did he do for us? It's really exciting. So I better finish because I've been going for a little while here. Science and God are not enemies. Can you just check if I've got another slide on here? Yeah, there you go. That's basically the point. Check out Jesus and become friends with God, the friend of science. (laughs) They're not enemies. Science doesn't rule out God. Science doesn't compete with God. They are complementary friends. God's given us science to enjoy and explore and delight in the physical creation. But science is not the only tool of knowing things about reality. We can know God because he's revealed himself in Scripture, in Jesus and he gives us his spirit, right? It's a relational way of knowing. It's a historical way of knowing. It's a combination of these things. So check out Jesus to find God and learn what it means to become friends with God, who is the ultimate friend of science, because he invented it. Amen. Shall I pray? Amen.